Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit Michter's.com to find out how their taste-is-everything, cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, and welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today, once again, I've got that absolute privilege, um, great spot. I am sitting in the middle of Milan in the Seven Star Galleria Hotel, but in the back room of the James Beard Foundation pop-up restaurant here, uh, and Anybody who's listening to this, we're open until October 31st. If you really, really are interested in food and you love Italy, this is a must. You, you've really missed out if you haven't come to the expo here. But aside from all that, I have a very special and wonderful guest today who's cooking. She's one of our chef ambassadors and part of the culinary corps for the State Department. Uh, none other than New York's own, well, you didn't grow up in New York, but we feel we own you because of your great restaurant, Sarah Jenkins of uh, Porchetta and Persina. And welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think for those of you who don't know Sarah, she truly is the darling of New York. Um, I don't think we really ever had a trattoria until she came. She just exudes her personality and her love of Italian food, and it is expressed um, a lot through pork, but <laughs> she's the queen of porchetta, and, and um, we're, really, we're really fortunate to have her there. Last night at the James Beard dinner, I introduced her as, you know, she has the restaurant I wanted to find in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're in New York next time, you have to make um, a dive, uh, a, a drive. Sorry, not a dive. A drive down to uh, the Lower East Side and 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 get to her restaurant. So we're near Astor Place, and and so, uh, welcome, Sarah. Enough of me talking about you. Let's talk about you. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. A little tired after last night, but uh-huh. <laughs> and you've been out to the expo as well. I have been out to the expo, and um, the expo is magnificent. I, I really, really loved it. I mean, not every pavilion is uh, amazing. The USA pavilion is really exciting. I was really dazzled by the Moroccan pavilion. Oh, um, okay. And, uh, yeah, it's all been very interesting. Okay, good. Well, enough of the expo. I want to get into you. So Italy is actually um, pretty comfortable for you. Why don't you tell us exactly your relationship with Italy? Okay. So my parents bought a farmhouse in Tuscany in 1971 in um, a tiny impoverished zone that electricity had just arrived to. Uh, about a year before, everybody was still what are known as contadini in Italy, uh, sharecroppers, farmers, people who really worked the land, and that was pretty much the source of everything for them. Um, 
There might have been a little money that came in through selling. My neighbor was a charcoal maker. There might have been a little money that came in from foraging chestnuts or selling some eggs at the market. But essentially, they raised everything they needed. So in those days, it was terraces of wheat fields with uh, grapevines around the edge and olive trees going down the middle. And the wheat was for their flour and their bread, the grapes for their wine, and the olive oil for their fat. And on top of that, they raised pigs and chickens and rabbits for meat. Um, I, I very much romanticize it and make it very nostalgic. It was also an incredibly hard life. And things have changed dramatically over four years. Was it hard for you and hard your for, family no, or just no, for them? No, absolutely no. not. Hard, hard for them. Hard for them. You know, uh, I mean, they had no heat. Everything was wood fires. They lived with animals underneath them, uh, a drying shed above them. There were three generations living on one floor in various rooms. Um, it was hard. There was no break. There was no, you know, if you took a break, then maybe you starved. Um, and one of the things I always try to remember, because everything has changed so much now, uh, when the youngest son got married, they actually got rid of the stalls on the basement and created an apartment for him and his wife, which was sort of unheard of, as usually what happened is the young couple kind of displaced the oldest couple in a room, and the oldest couple, I don't know where they went, maybe up into the attic to sleep. Um, and everybody continued this incredible communal living. Um, so, and, you know, and now they have central heating and they have cars and my neighbor even has an air-conditioned tractor and they're, <laughs> they're much more on a monetary economy today and nobody's growing wheat. Um, he still has vines, he still has olive trees, uh, you know, they have a garden, but I would say that most of their earnings come from his wife sells clothing at the, at the markets. Um, so six days a week, she's out at the different village markets. So how did this, how old were you when you started going there? And how, did, how do you think it affected you? I was eight. And uh, it was sort of just dazzling. And I, I always kind of talk about my real introduction, which was the Harvest Festival. So uh, there was one combine harvester in the village that ran off a um, tractor and it went from farm to farm during the wheat harvest, and everybody gathered, and the men threshed all day, and the women cooked all day. And at the end, there was a big feast under the grapevine, and I'm always convinced the full moon came up every time. <laughs> and at the end, somebody pulled out an accordion, and people danced, and, and you walked home under the stars. Um, and as a kid, and as a foreign kid, this is the great joy I eventually discovered when I lived in Italy again as a grown-up of being an expat. You don't have to conform to the social mores of your community because you're not living in it, but where you are living because you're a foreigner never expects you. So as a kid, we weren't expected to go to work the way perhaps the other children sort of would be helping out either in the kitchen or outside, depending on their sex. Um, and uh, we just got to run around and, you know, dash through everything and play and then go up into the kitchen. And we were, my brother and I, we were little blonde children and we were foreign. People really had very, very little experience with foreigners um, at that point. Many of these people 
never traveled very far from the village. They went to town maybe on maybe every Saturday for the big market, maybe only two or three times a year. It really depended. Um, my so so let's get back to you. You're eight years old. Mm-hmm. Where were you before you were eight years old? And wasn't that scary being yanked to another country away from your friends? <laughs> no, because uh, my father was a journalist, and so when I was six months old, we went to live in England. We then moved to Spain. We moved to Paris when I was three. We moved back to Spain. And then we moved to Lebanon, and we lived in Lebanon from 1970 to 1973. So 1973 was when I went to Italy for the first time. And actually, Lebanon was starting to get scary then, Um, so I think it was actually a relief. But when we were in Lebanon, uh, we used to go out, we rented a house in Cyprus, and that was kind of crazy. My parents were a little bit hippie, and so there were all these grown-ups hanging out, drinking and then a pack of kids that nobody was really paying attention to and we kind of ran wild um ran wild through the village ran wild through the fields all of that so I had some familiarity with the country and all of that and the change was just something I was so used to I never thought twice about it it's so did it make how old was your brother and it did it make you very close no, because he was four years younger than me, and he was my brother, and <laughs> we tortured each other. Um, it's really interesting to watch. I have a kid now. He's eight years old. He's never lived anywhere but New York City, and he's not a creature of change the way I am, and it's hard for me to tell. Is that his personality? Was I just more into it, or is it also just the way I've raised, you know? You were raised. Right, right, right. The luck of the draw, as right. it were. I do bring him to Italy. Um, you know, we have 150 olive trees now at the house, and we um, we come every October and pick olives and make our own olive oil. So I absolutely insist that he does that. I pull him out of school. They roll their eyes at me at school. I think, really? Really? <laughs> Two weeks of... They don't believe in education. They only believe in schooling. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, um, and he loves it here. But even still, bringing him over now, he's sort of like, oh, where are my friends? In a way that I wasn't. Right. So what, what, you were eight, so were you living full time then in Italy? Or what happened, what was your year like? So we went from, um, we went that first summer, we left Lebanon, we moved out of Lebanon, and we were on our way to Hong Kong, because that was the end of the, (laughs) that was the end of the Vietnam War, and my father covered the end of the Vietnam War. He was, um. He was the Newsweek correspondent for that. And obviously, we weren't going to live in Saigon. Uh, so we spent a couple of years coming back and forth, uh, spending summers in Italy. And then after the end of the Vietnam War, my father was lucky enough to convince Newsweek, who he worked for, that they should reopen the Rome Bureau and he should live there. And so we went out, we moved to Rome. So for many years... Then the house was sort of, we lived in Rome, we went up for weekends, we went up for holidays, we spent the whole summer up there. Um, So do you feel, how American do you feel? It's something that I've struggled with a lot. Ultimately, I am very American. Um, My family was completely American. We have no Italian origin whatsoever. Uh, You know, sometimes people say, but you speak English so well. And I think, well, yes. I mean, I grew up in an English-speaking household and... Generally, I went to English-speaking schools. Um, 
But at this point, I think I, I feel far more uh, American than Italian, for sure. And I never, you know, I have American friends who grew up here as children and have spent most of their lives here, and they probably more strongly identify as being Italian, and they are more culturally Italian than American. But I've also, I've been back living in the States for 16 years now, yeah. so I feel pretty American. And you have a Maine connection, don't you? When did that start? I was born in Maine. My mother's... Well, that started right at the beginning. <clears throat> my, uh, my mother's family goes back something like 18 generations in Maine. Um, and they were all poor ship f- seafaring people, shipbuilders, limestone quarriers, nothing exotic and dramatic uh, or, um, or old money or something like that. But it, it's interesting because it is a route. And like... For me, the house in Tuscany is the one place that's been kind of steady in my life, as has going to Maine. So they're the two load points, I might call them, of my life, Mm -hmm. where I really feel like I know the terrain and know what I'm getting into, and uh, it's not all just, whoa, what's happening now? So living in all those different places, you know, were you uh, an adventurous eater as a child? I was not. (laughs) Uh, That surprises me. Now, I ate some very weird things. I loved liver from an early age. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. I just thought it was the most delicious thing in the world. And when we lived in Paris and I was three, I loved escargot. Now, I suspect that had more to do with the garlic butter than anything else. Um, But... So I grew up liking some very specific odd things. But for instance, when we lived in Hong Kong... I could not stand the Chinese food. And I have to say, Hong Kong was probably the strangest cultural environment that I was in. Everywhere else I lived had that Mediterranean familiarity and similarity. And Hong Kong was an incredibly segregated society. It was very British colonial. Um, The Chinese considered round eyes to be horrible people, and the round eyes considered the Chinese to be lesser human beings. So, Were you in an American school? I was in a British school. Um, <laughs> yeah. I went to British schools mostly. I think my parents had something against... They had a bad experience with one of the early American schools they put me in, and it was the 70s, and my parents were big liberals and anti-Nixon and all of that, and so I think they found the American schools too jingoistic for them. Mind you, the British schools were just as jingoistic, it just wasn't American jingoism. It was colonialism. It was colonialism. <laughs> um, it took me years to kind of unlearn my colonial history. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, so anyway, we're in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. You're eating rice or not? Uh, probably mostly American food at home. And honestly, I wasn't very interested in food. I was a tiny little skinny kid. I didn't eat much. Um, I, you know, I had these weird likes and dislikes. And there are people who would say that I'm still an incredibly picky eater. It's just uh, matured into a different into a different level. And I'm certainly much more adventurous. At this point, I will try anything. So did you enjoy your childhood looking back on it? Do you think that was a great childhood for you? It was fantastic. It was really, really fantastic. I'm, I mean, I saw things. I didn't understand when I moved to Italy that this was a, a way of life that was completely disappearing and changing. And I'm so happy that I saw it. It's almost like I saw a piece of history. Um, at the tail end. And it was magical, uh, you know, running around. I mean, 
even it's funny because Rome was an incredibly safe city, even though there was a lot of uh, anarchist terrorism going on in Italy at the time. We lived in Rome during something called the uh, the Years of Lead. Um, and, you know, there was a head of state who was kidnapped down the street from my school and whose dead body was delivered in a car several blocks from where I lived. There was a lot of that. But there wasn't – we would go to New York and visit friends there, and it was – you know, they were all getting held up at gunpoint in the elevator. We really didn't have any of that. And as long as you weren't a head of state or a politician or involved in some way, you were, you were pretty fine, you know? Um, there's crime and there's crime. There's crime and there's crime. <laughs> anyway, anyway, we're going to take a break here and we'll be right back. You're listening to Chef Story, and this is Dorothy Can Hamilton broadcasting from Milan, the center of Milan at the James Beard Restaurant uh, at the Seven Star Galleria Hotel. And my guest today is Sarah Jenkins, um, who is based in New York. We can't, we just learned that it's, she's not a New Yorker in that sense, um, of the famed Porchetta and Persina restaurants. So, how did you get into food? If you were not interested in food in this in- incredible childhood, how did you get into it? So I moved back to the States when I was 15. Uh, my family moved back to a house in Maine, and they put me in boarding school in Maine. I think they were concerned that I'd be able to go to an American college and things like that. They were starting to think about those things. Um, my father took a new job where he basically worked overseas all the time for six months and then came home for six months. Um, And uh, it was a boarding school, so incredibly, uh, what do we call that? It's not industrial. It's um, institutional institutional food. I didn't really recognize. I mean, I had been coming to the States probably every three years at, at times to visit family, and I thought, you know, hamburgers and French fries were amazing, and... I loved the lobster rolls in Maine and all of that, but uh, I wasn't super familiar with American food. Um, and in those days, you couldn't actually buy olive oil. I mean, you could buy olive oil in New York, but you sort you couldn't even buy Old Monk olive oil in a supermarket in Maine. Um, and you know, the cheese selection sort of tended towards Velveeta and Kraft singles and. Probably Limburger, which I actually have a rather fondness for. Um, It being the only stinky cheese, I think. Um, So there was that, and we would go down to... I remember going down to Boston one weekend and going to the North End and eating there. And again, that Italian-American food was so unfamiliar to me, I, I couldn't even understand it. I couldn't understand... Uh, what was it? It was maybe veal piccata with a side of overcooked buttered noodles and you know, horrible salads, and again, no good olive oil, which was a flavor which even if I didn't identify with it or understand what it was, it was something I grew up with. So I grew up, and again, because 
the Mediterranean was still so rural and agricultural. Everything you ate was very locally grown, very locally produced. Um, we didn't get in Rome growing up. There were things that you simply, you know, orange season ended in March. Uh, tomato season began in March. There might have been tomatoes coming up from Sicily, but they weren't globally importing it the way everything is globally. I was at the supermarket the other day and grabbed a bag of lemons and only later looked at them and realized they'd come in from Argentina. That just didn't happen when I was a kid. Um, so even if it was really, really developed... Um, so how what so you're in high school what did you think you were going to be an artist um and I actually went to art school um <laughs> what kind of art uh I wanted to be ultimately I wanted to be a photographer I wanted to be a photojournalist and you know I'm a terrible photojournalist um and it's funny because I started cooking. I was working as a photographer for a very small newspaper. I always worked in kitchens as a grown-up. It was kind of an easy job to pick up, and I enjoyed the rhythm of it and the adrenaline and all of that. Um, but at a certain point, I was working actually with Barbara Lynch in, um, at Todd English's Figs Restaurant, and I was also working as a photojournalist for very small newspapers, Boston newspapers. So my assignments were things like, go take a photo of the Eagle Scout that just got an Eagle Scout in this community or go take a photo of an ice cream social. And I just, I really actually couldn't relate to these people at all. And I would have a photo assignment and I couldn't get out of bed and I would be getting ready to go to work and I would get up and I would read through Marcella Hazan and I would come in and I'd be like, let's make this and let's make that. And oh my God, like I couldn't wait to get to work. And at a certain moment, the penny kind of dropped. Um... And uh, so, yeah, so then I kind of... How do you know? How do you know? I think there are a lot of people out there who love cooking mm -hmm. and say, should I be a chef? What does it take to have the penny drop? What, when, when did that moment hit? Well, for me, I think it was, it was so sort of looking at, well, wait a minute, I'm enthusiastic going to this job, which is kind of my side job, and I'm doing research for it in the background, and, you know, in my free time, and then I don't actually want to get out of bed and go take a picture of the Eagle Scout. Um, so that was sort of clear. I, you know, again, being a chef is, it's a lot of hard work, and it's a lot of long hours, and it's a lot of being very low on the totem pole for a long time. I think, I think first of all, you have to have a passion for the food. Um, and an interest and a curiosity about it. And it's interesting because I meet people often who just don't, they work in this business and yet they don't go out to eat. They're not reading about it. They're not, and I think, is this really what you want to do? Um, years ago, I had a friend of mine who was living in San Francisco, a cook, and he came, he was staging in New York with Rocco Despirito. And he came over to my apartment, and I lived with my cousin. And my cousin is kind of a DJ. You know, he's, a, he's not really a DJ, but he loves, he has the DJ set up, and he has, dear God, I don't know how many records. And then I had a wall of cookbooks. And my friend walked in, so he wants to be a cook. He, you know, he wants to be a chef. This is his chosen career in his path. And he makes a beeline for the records and starts playing on the turntables. And he never even looked at the cookbooks. And I was like, so what do you really want to be here, you know? 
And the other thing is I think that you really have to embrace the schedule. I was never a morning person. So to get a job where I didn't have to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning and commute with everybody else, I really loved. And to this day, I love not having Saturday, Sunday off, but a different schedule when not everybody wants to do what I want to do because I'm not so original that I'm so different that nobody ever wants to do what I want to do. Um, I liked the nights. I liked, I honestly, I still thrive on the adrenaline, you know. I love doing something, even like last night, where you're not 100% sure until the end whether you're really going to be able to pull it off or not. Um, Something, you know, it's an unfamiliar situation. It's an unfamiliar team. Everybody's great. Everybody's wonderful. But you're like, how is this going to work at the end? Are we going to be able to, is everything going to work out? Um, And I I love that, you know. So uh, so what was your career path to getting to be a chef? So how did you get to Figs and all of that? So I worked as a line cook periodically, and I worked at Figs, and Barbara left. She went on to do something else. And Todd was distracted. I think he was having his second kid. He had opened a restaurant out on Martha's Vineyard. And I don't think he thought that maybe he could get away with not having a chef at Figs. And I just came in and did Barbara's job every day. I didn't. And again, this is, you know, I was taking home. God, in those days, I was taking home probably $250 a week. And I didn't, you know, sometimes people are so quick. And I I 100% believe that people should be paid for the work they're done. they, They do. But you also have to be willing to give something sometimes. And I just didn't, you know, my shift didn't really begin until 2.30. I didn't start getting paid until 2.30, but I came into work at 11 o'clock every day, and I made sure that everything that she had been doing and she had got done. And the one thing I had, the one, the thing that I really had going for me was this was, what was this? This was early 90s. Um, You know, America was sort of in the thrall of what is real Italian food, what is original Italian, you know, enough with this Italian-American southern food. We want to understand northern Italian food and what what it's really like to eat in Italy. And I, even though I hadn't paid that much attention to what was going on around me, I had a real understanding of what those flavors were. Um, So I just started cooking the way I knew how to cook. And let me go back to figs, and you're coming in at 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you an indelicate question. Yes. Did Todd notice? No, he was on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> so did you never feel resentful that you were doing Barbara's job, that no, nobody okay. appreciated you, even if you weren't getting the money? Right. It was the appreciation um, thing. And, and how long did you do it for, and, and what did it do for you? Did so I was actually just really kind of enjoying it. I was enjoying the freedom to uh, kind of do whatever I wanted in there and make whatever food I wanted and make a decision on what the specials were that day until the end of the summer. And at that point, they were like, okay, you're the chef. And I got a small raise. Um, it, didn't, it didn't really bother me until we opened a second figs. And then... I didn't get a raise. So now I was running two restaurants. And by that point, I had been, you know, uh, I had been the chef of the original figs for about two years. Um, And so at that point, I got a little resentful. I also realized that I was a a very young chef. There was a lot of stuff, you know, I had a great knowledge of Italian food. And I actually, it's funny because they asked me for my motto the other day and I couldn't think of it. I was like, motto, I don't have a motto at the Italian TV show thing. I always say I'm a home cook in a professional situation. 
um, and somehow I've managed to translate home cooking into uh, being able to do it in a professional situation. I'm not a classically trained chef in any way, shape, or form. So I realized I really didn't want to be, an essentially what they were turning me into was an executive chef, and the plan at that point was to open a multitude of figs, and I got an opportunity to go back to Italy, and I really wanted to do that because, again, I felt like, well, now I want to go spend time in Italy and really dig into the food and really pay attention um, to what it is. I had, had one Italian restaurant experience before where I had spent the summer that I was 20 at a restaurant in Tuscany um, cooking. And that was more an excuse to spend a summer in Italy because, you know, my Italian friends never needed, um, they never needed summer jobs. They weren't, it's not part of the economy here. It's not the way things work. My parents from the moment I was 15 were like, you have to, you have to do something in the summer. It's either you earn a living or you're doing something so enriching that, it's okay, you know, it's okay, but you need to earn something. You can't just lie on the beach like your Italian friends. And I, and ultimately I appreciate that because it did give me a really good work ethic. Um, so I wanted to spend the summer in Italy and we had these friends who had this restaurant in the middle of the country in Tuscany. And they had started out very much as a back to the earth kind of place where, you know, they baked the bread with their own wheat um, and, they produced their own olive oil. The restaurant was actually in an old olive mill that eventually got taken out. But um, And that was actually an incredible experience. I still, even then, was not paying that much attention to what people were doing. But I always remember I spent, um, one of my jobs was to endlessly prepare tomato concasse. And the gardener would bring up crates of San Marzano tomatoes in the afternoon that were still warm from the sun. And, you know, the garden was about 10 feet from the restaurant. And they were so ripe that you just slipped the skins off. That was how I learned to make tomato concasse. Do they say tomato concasse in no, Italian? I can't even remember what they called it, you know. But it was. But the it same was. Technique. It's the same technique. So years later, in one of my jobs, uh, I had to make, again, tomato concasse, and this was in America, in Boston, and we would get these crates of Roma tomatoes, and I had to blanch them and put them in ice water, and I was just like, well, something's really wrong here, you know? This just isn't right. Um, so, you know what Marcella has on, but what? She, she took a, pota- a potato peeler, uh-huh. and she just peeled the tomato. Right. She says, why do you put it in the hot water and damages the tomato? Right, She's right. so smart. Right, right, right. <laughs> anyway, getting back. Right. So, um, so anyway, you're, you're working in this restaurant. Now you're, on, you're into figs. What, right. w- what was your career path and how much did it? I, you know, we're going to probably take a little break, but how hard was it to start your own restaurant? I mean, you know, what brought you to that point? So Get me to that point. Okay. So I think when you really love this from the very beginning, you always imagine having your own restaurant, right, where you get to make all the decisions. You get to make decisions about the decor, about the menu, about what you're cooking, about the music that's played, who works for you, all of that. Um, it, uh, so how do you get there? Like what, what's, what is the necessary background that you felt – you know, okay, I've done... Was it the two figs that got you saying no, I could no. do it? Well, yes, I thought at that point I could do Although I knew I couldn't, right? So 
I, I left Figs. I went to Italy. I spent three years working. I worked uh, for a winery doing a cooking school program with them. And then I worked at a couple of different places in Florence. Nothing very fancy, nothing very amazing. And that actually shocked me because I grew up with this vision of Italy food and, you know, uh, our neighborhood restaurant, seeing the chef buying the produce in the market in the morning. <coughs> By the time I worked um, in Italy again, the economy of all that had changed so much. People were using all kinds of horrible shortcuts. Um, the restaurant I worked at in Florence used canned beans. I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, we're in the land of bean eaters, and you're using canned beans. And I just don't think it's that hard to soak and cook beans, really. Um, so right. after about three years of that, I decided that I was blocked in Italy in many ways, not because I was a woman, but because I was American. <coughs> and Italians... Was mid late nineties, Italians just really didn't think that Americans knew anything about food, um, or could possibly know anything beyond hamburgers. And I also the labor laws and all of that in Italy are so confusing and so weird, and the regulations. And Mitchell was saying this the other night. It is not a place that encourages um, self-starterdom or small business in any way, shape, or form. And he was absolutely right. And so I thought, well, where am I going to go? <clears throat> what am I going to do? And I really, on the spur of a moment, decided to go to New York. Okay, we're going to hold it there. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Chef Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton. And today, my guest is Sarah Jenkins of Porchetta and Porcina in New York, um, the darling of, I think, all the press know. If you want to know anyone who knows anything about Italian food, pork, uh, deliciousness, uh, Sarah is one of the first people you call. So, Sarah, now we hear you've you know just gone through your. Um, real, you know, paces of working in restaurants, both stateside and in Italy, and you've come back to New York. What year was that? Uh, I landed in New York in January of 99. Um, and I I knew that I could find a job as a line cook getting off the plane. So. Because you had been in Maine and in Boston. Why New York? Um, I just suddenly thought New York is perhaps a city that's multicultural enough for me to settle down in. Um, both I had lived in L.A. briefly after college, and I lived in Boston for six or seven years. And everywhere I ever went in the States, it kind of overwhelmed me with its Americanness. Um, and I had always kind of disdained New York, actually. I found it too dingy and too rushed and too rude and too all of those things. And somehow when I came, and it really was kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision, somehow it all just clicked for me. Um, and I found a job with a little Tuscan restaurant that had just opened on East 9th Street called Ecopi, 
um, and they were really excited. They needed a chef, and they, you know, they had me come. They had I started two days after I landed. I think I actually landed and went to dinner there. Um, How did you know about it? Uh, a friend of a friend. I reached out to somebody. I said, I'm looking for a job if you hear of anything. And they heard about it. And they put me in touch with them. And I talked to them. And, you know, the first thing I said, because I'd had some experiences with people, and I continue to have those, I'm really committed to quality ingredients. You know, that's what makes food great. And um, I've had people who, for various reasons, don't share that. I've worked for people who don't share that commitment. And it's pointless because we just shouldn't work together. They can, they can do whatever they want to do, and I can do what I want to do, but it's not a good combination. So I'm usually pretty upfront and pretty clear that this is what I do and this is what I'm interested in. And they just loved that. That just thrilled them to death. Um, the fourth night I was there, Mimi Sheraton walked in. And she was retiring, I think, at that point. So she never actually... No, it wasn't Mimi Sheraton. I'm sorry. It was Ruth Reichel. Um, and in those days, the Times did kind of a dining brief or something. And then three months later, they reviewed you. So she wrote a really nice little dining brief. I mean, I had barely gotten my hand on that menu. Um, and we were busy. And four months later, we were reviewed in the Times by Frank Pryle. Um, who was the interim reviewer, and we got uh, two stars in the East Village, which was just tremendously. I, I, I still to this day kind of can't believe it, you know. We were thinking we would get a satisfactory. If we were really lucky, we would get a star. Um, and so that was, that was just amazing, and that was an incredible introduction to New York. Um, and that was how long after you landed? Four months. Oh, my God. Well, that was a kiss from New York. That was a kiss from New York. That was a kiss from New York. That was like, you're meant to be here. Um, So I did that for a couple years, and then my time kind of ran through there. Uh, I'm, you know, one of the problems with my background is I am a restless person, um, and I'm quick to change things. I'm quick to move. I'm quick to change. Uh, From there, I went to work at Obuco, which was actually, I would say, one of my defining food moments. The original partners were a couple, and the man was, and I often refer to him as deeply insane. Um, <laughs> but, but he had an amazing, I mean, I went and interviewed there, and he was talking about how it's ridiculous we get bits of meat in, and why aren't we just getting whole animals in, and then what we have is what we have, you know? We butcher the whole animal, we have eight chops, we have ragu, we have this, we have that, and I, my, draw, my jaw sort of dropped to the ground. I was like, oh my God, where have you been my whole career? I love this. Um, so I really, I really, really enjoyed Il Buco. Um, and he really made me think about food sometimes very, very differently. He could be very, very critical. He once called Tuscan food um, insanely complicated, which I don't think I've ever heard anybody refer to Tuscan food as complicated. But <laughs> uh, it was refreshing. Um, so from there, I bounced around a bunch of different places. I worked in a small place in the Lower East Side where we really did this daily menu. We went up to the market. Uh, we bought as much as we could from the market. We created a new menu. And... Ultimately, that was actually really exhausting. Um, I could never take a break. I could never call in sick. We worked five days a week. If I wanted to go on vacation, and I like to travel, 
Um, sometimes people ask me, they're like, I don't understand why you jump around so much. I said, well, sometimes as a chef, I have to quit to get the three weeks off to go somewhere and do what I want to do. And sometimes that's really what I want to do. That's a bit of a pull for me in, in my career because I don't want to be Andres Saltner never leaving the stove. And yet I don't also want to be never in my restaurant. I want, I, I don't want my restaurant to be some concept that other people are executing for me. And I drop in. Um, and I don't know that I've still really resolved that. Um, you're more there, you're more there than not. Yes, I would say so. I would say so. Um, you know, in terms of getting your own restaurant and going back to what it takes, I think that what we really lack is actually more business education and more how to, how to raise money, how to run. You know, I couldn't write a spreadsheet to save my life. And eventually I realized that I'm, and I'm not a super numbers kind of person and bookkeeping, like this is not the things that, that jazz me, you know, walking into a garden and picking a tomato and eating it, that jazzes me. But uh, I realized that I actually loved working with Excel. I loved making like little things that pop up here. And all of a sudden, you know, I could write a spreadsheet. I was like, oh, it's, I mean, I had a lot of help from people. But it's um, not rocket science. It's not rocket science. And you start to go, you go, okay, so, you know, and at a certain point, you've worked long enough. You know how many people it's going to take to, uh, you know, cook the food for X amount of covers and you know how much you're more or less going to have to pay them and you can start putting those numbers in. But I do think that people who want, you know, and this, of course, is the big thing. You become a chef of your own restaurant and it's a small restaurant and then you're actually a small business owner. Um, And I think that's a big struggle and really hard and something I still try to find out because I like to be in the kitchen and I like to make things. And there are times that all I do is come in and expedite and deal with the fact that the Internet's not working. Um, And that's not very fulfilling or happy. Or management and personnel issues. Or management personnel issues or all of that. Um, It's interesting because very early on I had to learn. I knew how to cook. Being a manager of people was was not something that came naturally or easy to me. And I, my philosophy, I take the route that I treat you as a grown-up. I'm not interested in micromanaging people. I'm not interested in yelling at them or abusing them. I'll treat you as an adult, but you likewise have to act like an adult. And if you can't do that, then we can't work together. Um, That's a good philosophy. Yeah. But uh, I'm probably too nice a lot of the time. But but that's what works for me. And, you know, so, um, you know, we're getting to the end of the interview. So what I realize now is it's got to be a two part interview, which could be a lot of fun because I'll come over and sit in one of your restaurants and, 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 you know, we'll actually talk about what it's like once you're up and running and dealing with, uh, the press. But let's, so let's dig down a little deeper about what those early years were like. You know, what kind of confidence does it take to say, okay, I'm going into my own restaurant? Where do you get the money? You know, New York is really ruthless with people. How, how were those early years? I mean, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you keep kind of, nudging at it. I want to open a restaurant. I want to open a restaurant. Uh, We all kind of, all of us female chefs talk about it. We all feel like it's easier somehow for men to raise the money. Um, And I didn't even really raise that much money. Um, 
you know, it was a small, I mean, when we opened uh, Porcena, we were, we had fumes. We probably had less than $3,000 in the bank at that point. And that's not what people tell you to do. $3,000? We, uh, I did know at least that we would get, that I was well known enough in New York that we would get attention and press and people would come in and eat quickly and soon, which they did. Um, I don't God, I, I wish I had a formula for saying how you get the money. You kind of just keep talking to people and you know, people always say, Oh, I'm gonna write you a check. Oh, I wanna invest in your restaurant and then you go back to them and they don't actually something else has happened, they've invested in something else. So you kind of have to keep trying and failing and trying and failing and trying and failing. Um, so what's it like was it fun doing the first restaurant? You know, well, in the, the early planning days. Yes, yes, it is, it is. I mean, again, it's so much details. It's like, oh, my God, they've delivered the dishwasher that I ordered, and it's dented, and I have to, you know, and I was like, but I want to get in the kitchen and start, like, cooking food and and just playing around with with the menu. Um, So, again, it's a lot of petty details, but it's exciting. It's fun, and here you are. you're, You're making decisions, that painting there, this soundtrack here. This is how, you know, who am I going to hire? I mean, I was lucky I had a lot of people that I had worked with over the years that wanted to come and work with me again. So that was fun. It felt like you were building a family and a community. And that was really, that ultimately is what I love. And you stayed in the East Village. And I stayed in the East Village. Um, There are people who think that I should probably be in another neighborhood, that there are other labor, you know, I find, I find right now in the East Village that I am not, I am not such a luxury restaurant that the uber wealthy who've moved in it's it's their place and i'm not so cheap that the nyu students that it's their place so many of my regulars are people who've lived in the east village for a long time who don't have a super ton of money but in a way i love them i wish there was more of them because they really appreciate what i do um and it's a it's a treat sometimes for some of them to come in mm-hmm. some of them come in once a week some of them come in three times a week some of them come in once a month um, and it's those once a month there's where you know they've kind of it, it feels it feels really like I feel really honored that I'm what you're spending your money on because right. it's not money that came easily or that you right. let go easily. Right. Um, so in those early days, what was your favorite dish you put on the menu? Hmm. What was that dish you were just well, so the, proud of? The dish that everybody went nuts over and to this day love to the point that I have people who come in and can never order anything else is the anelone with lamb sausage. It's spicy lamb sausage and uh, turnip greens. And it was something I played around with one day. You know, in the Abruzzi, they make sausage and greens. I would say southern Italy is a very common combination. I had merguez sausage, and I thought, wouldn't that be nice? And I made it, and I was like, this is good. Um, And at the same time, this pasta importer who brings in a very, very 